Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have this amazing little marker in our house that the kids years ago loved and were fascinated with. I'm still fascinated by it. It's a, it's a marker that has basically invisible ink. And so when you take it and you write on a sheet of paper, you can't see anything. You don't see what you've written. But this marker has a little light on the end of it. And when you press the button and the light shines, when you shine it on that area that you wrote, magically, what you wrote becomes visible. That's a really cool marker. But it's fascinating because what is invisible on a sheet of paper, when light is shown upon it, shined on it, it becomes visible. Invisible becomes visible. We live in a world that we can see and that we can touch. We live in a world that is visible. But God's word describes another world, another kingdom that exists that is just as real as the world that you can see and touch. It's called the kingdom of God. It's invisible. Now, it was inaugurated at Jesus' death and resurrection. And when he returns a second time, it will become permanently and eternally visible. But in between Jesus' first and second coming, there are times and places where this invisible kingdom becomes visible. The question is how? How is the invisible kingdom of God made visible? 
First is through the pattern of the kingdom. Now I'm using this word pattern very purposely. What is a pattern? It's a, a set of elements that repeats in a predictable manner that produces a design, right? So if you're standing in the middle of a football field and you look straight down and you say, I see individual blades of grass, those individual blades of grass form a pattern that we would call a field. Or if you were standing in a forest and you looked ahead and you say, I see individual trees. Those individual trees form a pattern that we call a forest. In these Beatitudes, Jesus lays out individual behaviors and heart motivations that collectively form a beautiful pattern called the kingdom of God. And you say, how do we know that this passage and these Beatitudes are about the kingdom of God? Well, there are eight Beatitudes. And the promise or the result of the first and last Beatitude are identical. Verse three, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the scriptures, this is a stylistic device called an inclusio. It means this, that everything that's found between those markers are all about that theme, the kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew's language for the kingdom of God. This is all about the kingdom of God. And what's important to see is that in between Jesus' first and second coming, there are two very distinct patterns that we see. The pattern of the world and the pattern of the kingdom. And they are very different. As different as, speaking of patterns, chevron versus plaid. Very different patterns, and so it is with the pattern of the world versus the pattern of the kingdom. They are completely, totally, and recognizably different. And you're going to see this as we walk through these patterns in the Beatitudes, and you're going to see that it's impossible, absolutely impossible to live out this pattern of the kingdom through self-effort. Each beatitude begins with blessed. What's that mean? Well, some modern translations would say happy. That doesn't quite get at what blessed means. Now, certainly those who are blessed by God are profoundly happy at times, but you can't reduce blessedness to mere happiness. In the scriptures, we see times where man blesses God and where God blesses man. And that gives us a clue as to what blessed or blessed means. It means to be approved of or define the approval of. So when man blesses God, man is approving of God, not in a condescending way, but in a worshipful way of praising God, 
When God blesses man, he's approving of, of man. D.A. Carson, I think, says it well as we get into the Beatitudes. He says, if God's blessing means more to us than the approval of loved ones, no matter how cherished, or of colleagues, no matter how influential, then the Beatitudes will speak to us very personally and very deeply. So what is the pattern of the kingdom? Pattern of the kingdom number one, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't speaking of material poverty here. Okay, poor in spirit. What he's saying is that the poor in spirit know that they bring nothing to God. The poor in spirit recognize that they have no resources in and of themselves to have any chance of living out these beatitudes. The poor in spirit are utterly and totally destitute, spiritually bankrupt. Isaiah 66.2 describes it well. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, that's poor in spirit, and trembles at my word. Now, what does it look like then to not be poor in spirit? The next verse, Isaiah 66.3 explains. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. God is comparing religious behaviors religious sacrifices with what we would see as blatantly evil, something like murder. You say, how can that be? Well, when a religious behavior is done to impress God in an attempt to prove one's worth, that is detestable to God. It's detestable to God. And you can see how this is completely opposite of the pattern of this world, right? The pattern of this world says, says rugged independence. Look out for yourself. You've got what it takes. It's in you. It's all in there. You've got the resources. You've got to tap into it. It's all inside of you. That's not poverty of spirit. Poor in spirit means being emptied of all self-righteousness, of all moral self-esteem, of all personal vainglory. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes they bring nothing to God and therefore are completely dependent on God for everything. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Pattern of the kingdom number two, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Now, this morning is speaking of intense grief over sin and evil. This is the deep grief that comes about when you see sin and evil in your own personal life and in those around you and in our world, right? What we see right now happening over in Israel and Gaza produces deep grief when we see sin and evil of that magnitude, right? There's deep grief. There's a, a mourning and you can see where this pattern of the kingdom is very opposite from the pattern of the world. Right? Our world runs from mourning like it's the plague. Right? Our world is about laughter and, and, and pleasure-seeking. And, and anyone who's a mourner is almost like a wet blanket. Right? Get, get, get past that. Let's get to laughter and pleasure-seeking and and yet you and I know what it's like to avoid grief like it's a plague. Let me give you an example. Something awful happens in your life and someone comes to you and says, I am so sorrowful that happened, that you had to experience that. That's awful. Now, how would you respond to that? One response could be, Yes, it's beyond awful. It's tearing me apart. I don't know that I have strength to go on. But I would say more often than not, when someone comes and expresses sorrow and names how awful the situation you are in or have been through, oftentimes our response is something like this. It's okay, I'm fine. It's okay, I'll be fine. I'll be okay. It's almost like we are avoiding the grief and avoiding the mourning. And the question is, why do we, why do we generally speaking have an allergy to grief? Tying it back into the first beatitude is because we're not poor in spirit. There's something deep in us that says we have to convince everyone that we're strong and unaffected by sin and evil. And that's not poverty of spirit. But when we live like that, when we pretend everything's okay, when we avoid grief like the plague, we miss out on something beautiful. And that is the comfort of God. Blessed are those who mourn. And then what's the result? What's the promise? For they will be comforted. Both now in the present and most certainly in the future. In fact, if you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse four, it says, he, God will wipe away every tear in their eyes. That's the tender language of a comforter. And when you don't run from grief or run from mourning and try to pretend like everything's okay, then you actually receive that deep comfort from God now and certainly in the future. Pattern of the kingdom number three, verse five. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is an incredibly misunderstood character trait. And here's why. Oftentimes, we define meekness as weakness. Or we confuse meekness with being wishy-washy. Or we associate meekness with being timid or indecisive. Right? That's generally speaking how we, we speak of meekness. None of this defines meekness. Here's what meekness is. It is the controlled desire to put the interests of others before your own. We see a great example of this in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses' meekness is demonstrated in that chapter. It's demonstrated when he refuses to defend himself when his person is being attacked. See, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is actually power. And we see it displayed most beautifully in the life of Jesus. He was meek. And his meekness was on display on the cross as he hung there and didn't say anything as he was mocked unjustly. And he didn't come down. That was meekness. That was power. And that's what meekness is all about. Again, how opposite this is from the pattern of the world. The pattern of the world is Grab life by the horns. Look out for yourself. Nobody else is going to look out for you. You're the center of the universe. Take control of your life. That's not meekness. This beatitude actually flows right out of Psalm 37, verses 10 to 11. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Important to understand, wicked there just means those that don't have faith just those in the world without faith in Jesus Christ. The wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, right? This person maybe who has attacked you or this person who has done something to harm you or hurt you or this person who has done something to harm a family member or created havoc, it's very easy to stare, right? To stare and want justice. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Pattern of the kingdom number four, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now notice what this beatitude doesn't say. It doesn't say, blessed are those who realize something is wrong. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst. I mean, just imagine a time where you were parched 
or you were at like hangry level five, hungry, thirsty. Now, this is speaking of a passionate desire for the right. Now, frequently in the New Testament, righteousness is described as that righteousness, that perfect righteousness we receive from Christ by faith that's imputed to us in that great exchange where he takes our sin. Paul uses righteousness in that way most frequently. But Matthew, and we've seen this, Matthew uses righteousness in a different way. Matthew speaks of the righteousness that is conformity to God's will. So what the beatitude here is saying is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for conformity to God's will. Now notice what the promise is. Notice what the result is. For they shall be satisfied or filled. They shall be satisfied with the righteousness they hunger for, which means this is a given righteousness. This is not an achieved righteousness. This is not, I am going to hunger and thirst into my own strength, conform my life to God's will, and I myself will fill myself with righteousness. That's not what this says. It says there's a hunger and thirst for conformity to God's will, but the promise is they will be filled. God will fill that. In other words, this is a given righteousness. Righteousness, conformity to God's will, is a gift of God. God gives you the strength and the resources to conform to his will. And when you hunger and thirst for it, he satisfies, he fills. So it begs the question, what do you and I hunger and thirst for? parched, that level of hunger that runs deep. What do we hunger and thirst for? And can what you hunger and thirst for fill you or satisfy you? Pattern of the kingdom, number five, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, some read this and run to a very legalistic interpretation of, of this beatitude, and it goes something like this. Go show mercy to other people, and if you do that, then God will show mercy to you. The beatitudes are, are not prescriptive, they are descriptive. You say, what do you mean by that? A prescriptive interpretation of this beatitude is what I just said. You've got to earn God's mercy. And the way you earn God's mercy is to show mercy to other people. And he will reward you for earning his mercy. That's a prescriptive view of this beatitude. The descriptive view of it's very different. The descriptive view of this beatitude says this, that if I am not showing mercy to people, if I'm not a merciful person to others, then I am so unaware of my own wretched and miserable state that I don't think I need mercy from God. How can God show mercy to someone who doesn't see their miserable or wretched state 
that needs mercy. Let me illustrate this in the negative. An alcoholic who doesn't admit that he's an alcoholic will be harsh and hateful to other alcoholics or to just generalize it. A sinner who doesn't admit that he's a sinner will be harsh and hateful towards other sinners and not merciful. But you run that in the positive. When an alcoholic admits they're an alcoholic and receives mercy from God, the alcoholic becomes merciful towards other alcoholics. Or a sinner who admits he's a sinner before God receives the mercy of God and becomes soft and merciful towards others. Here are a couple of questions to ponder. Are you merciful or overbearing to the wretched? Are you gentle or hard-nosed to the downtrodden? Are you helpful or callous to the backslidden? Are you compassionate or impatient with the fallen? Now, to connect this to the first beatitude, how you answer those questions is going to reveal whether you're poor in spirit or not. Right? Those who are poor in spirit, recognizing they have nothing to bring, are the most merciful, compassionate, patient, gracious people. Pattern of the kingdom number six, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The heart, what does that mean? It's not just speaking of the physical organ in your chest that beats. In the Bible, the heart means the control center of life. It is the center of your emotions, your will, your spirituality, everything, right? The heart is the control center of life. Purity of heart is not just outward conformity to the rules. It's inward motivational purity that matches outward conformity. So pure in heart or purity of heart is freedom from the tyranny of a divided self or of a divided heart where the inner motivations are constantly at war with the outward behaviors and they never match up. It's freedom from hypocrisy or freedom from doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. It's a heart that is in tune. That's what purity of heart means, a heart that's in tune. Inner matches, matches the outer. Now, the result or the promise of this is that they shall see God. So what does that mean? Well, let me illustrate this by the following. Think about a hunter who's in the middle of the forest 
who is devoid of musical knowledge and any musical appreciation. And as he's in the middle of the forest, this, the, the voice of the wind starts rushing through the forest loudly. Now to that hunter, that may mean no more than it's gonna startle an animal that will come out and become an easy victim. But if Mozart is standing in the middle of that forest and hears the same loud, deep sound, to him, it's gonna mean this beautiful music coming from God, coming from his creation. So what Jesus is saying here is a, a, a pure or pure in heart, a heart that is tuned, that's free from the tyranny of a divided heart or a divided self, a heart that's in tune will see and hear and experience the presence of God. A heart that is out of tune, that's at war with itself, right? isn't in tune to hear or see or experience the presence of God. Pattern of the kingdom, number seven, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice here, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. The greatest peacemaker that has ever lived is Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate peacemaker. He's the one that made peace between God and man by removing sin and dying on the cross. He is the ultimate peacemaker. Notice what it says here. Blessed are the peacemakers, and then the promise or the result is they shall be sons of God. Now, this is important. This is not just saying a child of God. Child of God has to do with position. But in Jewish thought, sons meant to, to uh, bear the or to take on the character of someone, right? So they shall be sons of God means that, that when you are a peacemaker, we're gonna talk about this in a sec, but when you're a peacemaker, you resemble the wonderful peacemaking characteristic or character trait of our heavenly father because God is a peacemaker. You say, what does this mean practically? Well, certainly it means sharing the gospel with someone that they find peace between God and themselves, right? That the gospel brings reconciliation between God and a person. That is certainly what peacemaking means, but it goes much deeper than that. It extends far beyond that. Instead of delighting in division or bitterness, or the us versus them mentality, disciples of Christ delight in making peace wherever possible. So here are a few questions to ponder. Do you seek to lessen tensions rather than accelerate tensions? Do you seek solutions rather than introducing more problems? Or when an argument starts to intensify, do you lower your voice 
and smile more broadly in proportion to the intensity of the argument. James chapter 1, verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And it certainly doesn't produce peace. Pattern of the kingdom, number eight, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this beatitude certainly points to the stark contrast between the pattern of the world and the pattern of the kingdom. In the world, when someone reviles you, that word means to insult or to mock. In the world, when someone reviles you or speaks evil against you, how do you respond? You get mad and you take revenge. That's how you respond. You respond in anger. You fight back with anger. That is the norm in the world. How does Jesus say in the kingdom you're to respond to someone who reviles you and speaks evil against you? He says you're to rejoice and be glad. Wow. Rejoice and be glad? Do you see why you have no, no chance of living these beatitudes in and of your own resources? There's nothing in you when you are spoken ill of, when, you are, when someone speaks evil against you, there is nothing in you that goes, yeah, I'm gonna rejoice and be glad right now. No, every part of you wants to strike back in anger and get revenge and retaliate. Now what's interesting here is the promise. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then Jesus goes on to say why you can rejoice. Now, if we were to look through the scriptures and see why the scriptures give reason to rejoice when you suffer or when you're persecuted, there's a lot to be said. Right? The scriptures talk about because that suffering or persecution is going to change you. Because that suffering and persecution is going to change others. Those are all true. But notice the reason Jesus gives here. He says, the reason you rejoice is because great is your reward in heaven. A future promise reward in heaven dictates your joy in the present. 
a future promise from Jesus dictates your joy in the present in the midst of being persecuted and spoken ill of and being claimed to be evil. Paul picks this up in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Paul says, don't even put them on the scales. They're not even comparable on the scales. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. On September 2nd, 1945, the documents of surrender ending World War II were officially signed by the Japanese and by representatives of the Allied Nations. General Douglas MacArthur led the ceremony where these documents were signed on the USS Missouri. And he was the last to sign the surrender documents on behalf of the United States. And so as he stood up there, flanked by his military colleagues, he took his Parker fountain pen and he signed his first name, Douglas. Then he took the pen and he handed it to General Wainwright, who signed Mac. Then he handed the pen to General Percival, who signed Arthur. And this very uncommon thing that happened, where General MacArthur didn't just sign it and be done, but had two others sign it, was his way of honoring two United States generals who had suffered horrendous persecution as prisoners of war. And yet they persevered. And because of that, they were invited to share in the glory of the victory. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For your reward is great in heaven. How is the invisible kingdom of God made visible? Through the pattern of the kingdom that Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes. But it's not just the pattern of the kingdom. It's the pattern of the kingdom on display. And that's what verses 13 to 16 are all about. It's this pattern that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes now on display. And he uses two images to teach this. He says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. It's also added to give taste to food. He says in verse 16, you are the light of the world. Light removes darkness so that people can see. Now, what's interesting in both of these images that Jesus gives, he follows each statement with another statement that describes what it looks like for these patterns of the kingdom to not be on display. 
So verse 13 regarding salt, he says, but if salt has lost its taste, now technically that's impossible. Salt doesn't lose its taste. What is meant here? Well, in the first century, salt was very much an impure substance, meaning that you had salt, but there was always these, these impure substances mixed in with it, such that the sodium chloride or the salt could leach out, and what was left was these impure substances that had no saltiness. So what's Jesus teaching here? Jesus is comparing the pattern of the world to the impure substances, meaning the pattern of the world has no saltiness. It neither preserves, nor does it give any taste. Give you an example. If someone reviles you, if someone speaks evil of you, and you respond by verbally attacking them or by carving them up on social media, nobody's surprised. Nobody's surprised by that. That's standard operating procedure in our world. That's not salty in any way. That's, a, that's just what we do. But if you're reviled or someone speaks evil against you and you respond by not getting angry, by not retaliating, by remaining quiet, by not defending yourself, and by being content, now that attracts attention. That's the salt of the earth. Like that attracts attention. That is very different. That's a different pattern than the pattern of the world. Regarding light, verse 14, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Same idea. A city on a hill is set apart. The pattern of the kingdom is set apart from the pattern of this world. Completely set apart. It's different. Now, this begs the question. If the pattern of the kingdom on display attracts attention, to whom does it attract attention? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. That, Jesus has just defined what the light is in the Beatitudes. Right? Let your light, pattern of the kingdom, shine before others that's very opposite than the pattern of this world, so that they may see your good works. They see this pattern that's very different and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When your life reflects the pattern of the kingdom, what's the purpose of that? Is it to give glory to you or to give glory to the Father? I want you to imagine you're eating 
a piece of corn on the cob. Now, if you're anything like me, corn on the cob tastes really good when it has some salt on it, right? When you eat a delicious salted piece of corn on the cob, how do you respond? Besides, mm, some of you are wanting to get to lunch. How do you respond? You say, that salt tasted amazing. Of course not. You say, that corn on the cob tasted amazing. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You there is plural. This is not you individual. This is you collective, you community of God's people, you the church, made up of individuals, but you the community of God's people are salt of the earth. Such that when your lives collectively, because you realize these beatitudes are relational. When you church, collectively, community of God's people, reflect the pattern of the kingdom that Jesus lays out here in the Beatitudes. You are like salt. That glory is given to God the Father and not you. That God is praised that God himself is on display before a watching world. Let's pray. Father, these beatitudes, this pattern of the kingdom is so upside down. It's so counterintuitive. It's so opposite to what our flesh craves. It's so opposite to the culture of our world. And because of that, we know that this is not something that can be done in our own strength via self-effort. This is a pattern that is only birthed in us through poverty of spirit. Through your people confessing and believing they bring nothing to the table that we are utterly destitute, that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we don't have the resources within to live out this pattern of the kingdom. Well, Father, would you bring us to that place of humility and thus fill us with your spirit that we would have the power to live out what is described here by Jesus that is so counterintuitive and so upside down. But Father, I pray that this pattern of the kingdom would be reflected in this local body, Christ Church East, and in the local bodies of Christ in this city. By the way that we, we, we behave on social media, by the way that we respond to those who attack us, that the world would see something very different and give glory to you, the Father. Father, as we respond now to your goodness and your power and grace, 
as we sing, would you fill our hearts? And would you receive the praise that you are due? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.